Amen. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself what had happened. So this morning, we have the, the tremendous blessing, the great blessing this morning to celebrate what is arguably the greatest single event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Around the world today, uh, people have gathered and will gather to sing songs to the risen Savior. People uh, will go to church today who don't regularly attend the church. Uh, people, uh, you know, hopefully as they go to church, they're going to hear a message uh, of the risen Savior and the significance of the resurrection. Many people today who aren't religious, many people today who don't believe in God, they're going to celebrate uh, Easter uh, with Easter egg hunts, chocolate bunnies, you know, family dinners. The resurrection of Jesus is such an amazing historical event that personally, I often wonder why people wouldn't believe in it. One of my problems, of which there are many, uh, is that I think everyone knows what I know. I think, you know, I'm not blessed with any special intelligence or special insights. I don't have the monopoly on knowledge. Uh, if you're familiar with the movie Madagascar 3, uh, I love that movie, Madagascar 3, but you'll remember the seal. I love the seal. His name, you remember his name? Stefano. Uh, he was an Italian seal. But I remember one point in the movie, Stefano, he's talking to Alex, and he gives him an idea about Circus Americano. And Alex says, Stefano, you're a genius. And Stefano says, no, I'm not. I'm only average intelligence. Some even say slightly below. <laughs> and you know what? That's the way I feel. That's the way I feel. I love that line because I feel that way. I'm not very smart. I'm not very cerebral. Uh, and because of that, I think, again, if I know it, everybody else knows it. I have no new insights. And I think that that creates a problem for me. Because 
it, it has a tendency to cause me to be a poor communicator. You know, I tend to make the assumption that what I know to be true is understood by everybody that I'm talking to. Everybody else knows it to be true too. And so when I talk to people, what happens is I felt to explain to them the basics, the foundations, or the uh, timeline that is leading up to the events, the topic uh, that's being discussed. And what happens is I often just cut to the chase then because I think we're all on the same page. I'll often blow off uh, what I see as ridiculous objections to what I know to be true and not realizing that those objections can be genuine questions that need to be addressed in the minds of the people that I'm talking to. You know, it's a problem that's manifested uh, in my past in my family. You know, uh, sometimes the kids have had questions in the past regarding a specific topic. And uh, it just seems silly to me. And so I kind of think they're just kidding. And I blow it off. Or, you know, sometimes Tina and I will be engaged in a discussion regarding something important. And I just assume we're on the same page. You know, we know the same thing. And, and that both of us understand and just know it. What I know, she knows. And what happens is it causes a tremendous amount of frustration for the people that I'm talking to as well as myself. And I have to think that that's a problem for many of us when we tell people about Jesus. You know, when we, we need to understand we've met the risen Savior. We read the Bible regularly and the Spirit of God has testified in our hearts to the truth. We have a relationship with Jesus. And for some of us, you know, I think the reality is that we've walked with Jesus so long that I think that we fail to recognize that people that we're sharing Christ with, you know, they don't actually have the foundations that we have. They don't have the understanding uh, what we understand to be true. And, and they don't know the things that we know. And so, you know, when they hear of scandals within the church, you know, amongst pastors, amongst churches, they hear about these things on TV. When they hear about pastors focusing on giving, always, you know, in every message. When they hear, you know, how those pastors are flying around the country, uh, either in first class or in a private jet, or they're living luxuriously above uh, their congregation. When the people hear that the church is just filled of hypocrites, well, you know, uh, they also sometimes hear, you know, hey, religion is the cause of wars and other atrocities like the Crusades or, you know, Salem witch trials. Well, when these people hear these things, what they do is they tend to conclude, if that's what Christianity is about, I don't want any part of it. And it's because they don't understand what we understand. Thing, those things have nothing to do with Christianity or the truth of Jesus Christ. We know that. So when we see that people who are lacking the necessary foundation to understand or discern the truth, when we see that, uh, you know, they don't understand these things, you know what happens is there's a wonderful door of opportunity that's opened up to us. So many people today, they're in the dark about Jesus Christ. They're in the dark about the Bible. 
You know, they have no understanding, no knowledge. So when we tell them about Jesus, when we tell them that they need to be born again, you know, it's actually natural for them not to understand. You know, we, and I think sometimes we get afraid. We don't have to be afraid of, of, of objections that people rise. We don't have to be afraid of questions that they ask or that look, you know, that blank stare as if to say, what in the world is this guy talking about? You know, you guys know that look? Have you ever seen that look? You know, we don't have to be afraid of any of that, right? When we share Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, we can share it with confidence. We don't have to be afraid. But we do need to realize that those people don't have an understanding of what the Bible has to say. They don't have an understanding. They don't know. They don't have the foundations in regards to Christianity. I think the best way for us to understand where people are coming from is to ask them a few questions, you know, um, to get them to tell us, right? Uh, to get them to tell us what they know, what they understand. And so, you know, what I'll do is I'll often ask people, hey, do you believe in God? That's the way I start a conversation often with people. Do you believe in God? And then I'll follow that question up with, have you ever read the Bible? And if they say yes, then I'll ask them, well, what part? That's when you get the blanks there. <laughs> now, I know very few non-believers, unbelievers, have actually read the Bible. Um, but I'll ask them anyway. And if they say, no, I've never read the Bible, that's when I say, wow. I mean, <laughs> what's that like? Because for me personally, I can't imagine not reading the Bible. I can't imagine not being in church, gathering with brothers and sisters on a Sunday morning. And you know, I'll frequently ask the people then, like, hey, were you raised in a church? You know, did your parents take you to church as a child? And I found that most people, maybe as many as nine out of 10 people, uh, they'll say, yeah, I was raised in a church. My parents did take me to church when I was a kid. And if that's their response, then I'll ask him, well, what happened? What happened uh, that made you leave the church? Or what happened that made you decide that there is no God? And amazingly, people are willing to tell you their story. You know, if we'll just take the time to ask them a few questions, we can build a bridge where, where they're open to us telling them all about Jesus, telling them all about the Bible. And as I start that conversation, what I'll do uh, as they open that door, often what I'll do is I'll outline the entire Bible for them. Part one is the first three chapters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, you see the Bible assumes that everyone has a concept of God, that God exists. So you know what? I don't waste my time and you shouldn't waste your time trying to explain God, trying to prove that there is God, right? Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament show, shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. There is a God, and everybody knows it. Those who deny God need to explain why almost universally 
Things like lying, adultery, stealing, murder is considered to be wrong. You know, they need to explain where the conscience came from. You know, an innate sense that seeks to guide us, a, a right and wrong that's greater than we are. You know, it's not something that just evolved. Where did the sense of fair play come from? You know, uh, because I don't know about you guys, but to me, life seems pretty unfair. Where did that sense of fair play that things should be done fairly and rightly come from? Universally, mankind uh, displays, demonstrates a need to worship. Where did that come from? Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. As we continue with part one of the Bible, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let us make man in our own image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, uh, in, the, in the image of God created he, him, male and female created he, them. So what does it mean? Uh, God created man in his own image. Does it mean that God is about 5'8", 6 foot tall, 185, 195 pounds? Is that what it means? No, that's not what it means. The Bible teaches that God is a triune being. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Man is in created in that image, in an inferior trinity. The Spirit, you know, that's the plane in which we commune with God. And then the soul, that speaks of, you know, man's thoughts and, and uh, his mind. And then the body is the physical plane, right? And, and uh, it was the perfect order in which man could engage with God to walk with him and to commune with him. And God placed man in the garden, gave him one command. He was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man was faced with a choice. Right? He could enjoy communion with God uh, through obedience or he could rebel against God. And lovingly, God gave mankind a choice. And he also lovingly warned him the consequences uh, that would occur if he made the wrong choice. He said, in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know, there's been attempts. I don't know. I just think strange things. There's been attempts throughout history to portray the forbidden fruit as the apple. Now, I don't know why that is. Personally, I think the forbidden fruit is the avocado. You know, 15 grams of fat per 100 grams. But it's so good, right? Uh, people say, yeah, it's good fat. Okay, whatever. I mean, uh, yeah, you, you can't make a diet out of it. It's not good for you. It's not good for your heart. But what did, what did God mean when he said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die? Did he mean an instantaneous physical death would occur? Well, obviously not. If that was the case, none of us would be here today. But on that day, Adam did begin to age and to die physically. What God meant was on the day that Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he would immediately suffer a spiritual death. And Adam died that day spiritually. His fellowship with God was severed. 
causing a separation to occur between God and Adam. And on that day, man was no longer an inferior trinity where the spirit was on top and and in control, but now he would be ruled by his fleshly appetites, by his bodily appetites. And that special communion with God was broken. And the Bible scholars refer to this as the fall of man. That's what's occurred. Now, it would seem uh, to make sense that the only answer for spiritual death would be spiritual rebirth, right? That would allow man to come back into a right relationship with God in a right relationship and once again enjoy communion and fellowship with him. So in Genesis 3, God promised that the seed of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent, the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden to sin, which resulted in death. Paul said it this way, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. In other words, sin entered the world through Adam and death spread to all men. Death is universal, right? It, it's not a friend. It's an enemy. You know, I don't know if you've ever suffered the loss of a loved one suddenly or unexpectedly. I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. Even seeing a loved one who's been sick for an extended period of time you know, we comfort ourselves um, saying, you know, they're no longer suffering. But nonetheless, death is not, the, not a friend of ours. Death has taken loved ones away from all of us. And death is stalking each one of us too. No one should ever, no one should ever, ever follow or believe in a system or a religion that does not offer an explanation for where death came from, and then give an answer how to conquer it. Death is an enemy, and it's a result of sin, the Bible says. Paul says to, to the Romans, Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Now, part two of the Bible, Genesis 4 to Malachi 4, happens to be the rest of the entire Old Testament, right? In this section, we have prophecy after prophecy regarding the Messiah, the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent and provide forgiveness for sins. More than 300 prophecies regarding the Messiah, that he would be God, Isaiah 9, 6. You know, a very familiar verse to everyone. Believers and unbelievers, everybody sees it at Christmas time. It says, for unto us a child is born, uh, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prophecies like he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, that he would die a death in, in, that involved his hands and his feet, uh, feet being pierced, speaking of crucifixion, the only manner of execution that pierces the hands and the feet, right? This prophecy is found in uh, Psalm twenty-two sixteen. Another prophecy, Psalm twenty-two eighteen, predicted that his clothes would be gambled for. There are prophecies regarding his life, 
being given as a sacrifice, bearing the sins of all mankind. Prophecies regarding his resurrection, uh, Psalm 1610, which says, for you shall not leave my soul in Sheol, which means the grave. That's what it's talking about. You shall not leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. There are even time-sensitive prophecies like Daniel 9, which contains what's commonly known as the 70-week prophecy. It's the prophecy that predicts the exact day that the Messiah uh, would present himself to the nation of Israel. Daniel 9, 24 through 26 says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, speaking of the Jews, talking to Daniel, for your spe- uh, people and for your holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, to finish in, uh, the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, speaking about the Messiah. Knowing therefore and under- Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and Build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. We know through secular history that on March 14th, 440, uh, 445 BC, or if you're Jewish, happened to be the second of Nisan, We know that on that day, Artaxerxes gave the order to Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the streets of Jerusalem. Now, the weeks in this prophecy is commonly understood as a heptad. If you're uh, Jewish, that's the way the Jewish mind understands it. In other words, it would be 77-year periods. Seven weeks or 49 years plus 62 weeks or 434 years equals 483 years or 173,880 days using a 360-day calendar, which is the calendar used uh, in the days of Daniel. So March 14th, 445 B.C., or second of Nisan plus 173,880 days takes you to the 10th of Nisan, 32 AD, the exact day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's what we call Palm Sunday. It happened last week. It was the, it was the uh, uh, anniversary of Palm Sunday. We celebrated last week. It was the exact day that the Passover lamb was selected. And, and the last week of the 70-week prophecy is yet to come. The prophet Jeremiah referred to it as a time of Jacob's trouble. We call it the Great Tribulation. Well, all the prophecies in the Bible regarding the coming of the Messiah, again, more than 300 prophecies. And you've got to ask yourself, why did God go to so much trouble to record all these prophecies? And the reason, uh, it's actually a twofold reason that God did this. And it brings us to part three, the third section of the Bible, the Gospels, Matthew through John, right? The first reason why God went to so much trouble 
why he uh, went into so much detail regarding the Messiah and his coming was so that when the Messiah came, we would recognize him. So that there would be no doubt. So we wouldn't have to guess. Now, Philip Stoner, the uh, chairman of mathematics and astronomy uh, department at Pasadena City College, a non-Christian college, wrote a book that was published in 1952 called Science Speaks. There it is. And the book was based on a project he worked on uh, in his statistical probabilities class while at Pasadena College. And I'm sure that all of you here are familiar uh, with this project, have some awareness of his findings, but let me refresh your memory. They wanted to determine the mathematical probability of Jesus being the Messiah. Non-Christian college. What are, what are the odds? So they calculated the probability of someone randomly fulfilling just eight of the more than 300 prophecies pointing to the Messiah. So they chose the following prophecies to look at. Micah 5.2, which states that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And they estimated the average population of Bethlehem from the time of uh, Micah 2, 1952. They divided that by the population of the world by the same, in the same time period. And they determined that the chance of a particular person being born there in Bethlehem was one chance in 2.8 times 10 to the fifth power, or in other words, one chance in 280,000 people might have won, 280,000 people might have been born in Bethlehem. They looked at Micah 3.1, says a messenger would go before the Messiah preparing his way, and they thought, you know, that could happen, you know, uh, one chance in a thousand. Zechariah 9.9, that he would enter Jerusalem riding a donkey. Well, people probably entered Jerusalem riding donkeys all the time. So one chance in 10, that might happen. Zechariah 13, 6, they looked at that he would be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. They said maybe that would happen at a rate of one in a thousand. Zechariah eleven twelve that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver again. Maybe one in a thousand. Zechariah eleven thirteen. All of those 30 pieces of silver would be refused and then used to purchase a potter's field. That might happen, they decided, at a rate of maybe one in 100,000. Isaiah 53, 7, the Messiah wouldn't make a defense for himself, but that he would remain silent before his accusers. You know, that might happen in one in 1,000 cases. Psalm twenty two sixteen that this man would die having his hands and his feet pierced. Uh, the chance of that at that time, they determined was maybe one in 10,000. Now bear with me while I try to explain what they did. You see, the funny thing when you're talking about statistical probabilities, chance probabilities, you don't add those probable chances up. You multiply them. Right? So it's 280,000 times 1,000 times 100 times um, 1,000 times 1,000 times 100,000 times uh, 1,000 times 10,000. And what you get is a really huge number. 1 times 10 to the 28th power. Or, I don't know what comes after. It's 10 whatever's after 
octillion, trillion, right? Whatever it is. But what you do, you take that big number and you divide it, again, by the estimated number of people who live since these prophecies were given, approximately 68 billion people. And you come up with the odds of one man accidentally, randomly fulfilling just eight of over 300 prophecies pointing to the Messiah. It's one chance in 10 to the 17th power. It's one with 17, not that one. It's the wrong one. One with 17 zeros behind it. It's one chance in 100 quadrillion, right? It's a smaller number than the other one, but you know what? It's still unimaginably large. Well, Peter, Peter Stoner in his class went on to figure the odds. Well, what happens if one man randomly fulfilling 48 of these prophecies, of these 300 prophecies regarding uh, the Messiah? Now you can put up that slide. It turns out to be one chance in 10 to the 157th power. It's one chance in 10 with 157 zeros behind it. It's a big number. Anything over 1 times 10 to the 58th power is deemed utterly impossible by mathematicians. So to illustrate just how absurd it would be for one man to randomly fulfill 48 of the over 300 prophecies regarding the Messiah, you would have to make a ball out of electrons not equal to the diameter distance from the earth to the nearest star, which happens to be 1,500,000 light years away. By the way, a light year uh, is the distance a beam of light travels in a year. A light, uh, uh, light travels at 186,000 miles a second. So 186,000 miles a second times 60, because there's 60 seconds in a minute, times 60, that's, you know, how far it would travel in an hour, times 24, because there's 24 hours in a day, times a year. Keep that slide up there, please. That's what you get. It's 5 quadrillion, 865 trillion, 696 million miles. That's how far light travels in a light year, right? So to illustrate again, just how absurd it is for one man to randomly fulfill 48 of the over... 300 prophecies, we're done with that slide, you would have to make a ball of electrons not equal to the diameter of Earth to the nearest star, right, which is a million five hundred thousand light years away, but 4,000 times that size, right? Imagine a ball that size. And then you would not make one ball of the electrons extending out in all directions from the Earth's 6 billion light years in diameter, you'd have to make more than 500 balls that size every minute since the creation of the world to use up all 1 times 10 to the 157th power electrons. It's a lot of balls, right? And if you're still tracking with me, okay, that's more electrons that exist in the known universe. It's estimated that there are only one times 10 to the 80th power of electrons in the known universe. 
But then you got all these balls, right? You mark one of those electrons with a red X, uh, Philip Stone, or Peter Stoner said, and all those balls, which are six million mile, uh, six million light, six billion light years in diameter, mark one of the electrons with a red X and ask somebody who's blindfolded to swim through all those balls, you know, to just walk around randomly. And when he felt lucky to reach down and pick an electron and the odds of him picking the one electron marked with a red X equals the odds of one man randomly fulfilling just 48 of the prophecies uh, regarding the coming Messiah. Philip Stoner gave his work to American Scientific Affiliation to be reviewed. And they gave his work the stamp of approval stating that his work, and I quote, had been carefully reviewed and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regards to the scientific method presented. The mathematical analysis is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound. And you know what? Jesus didn't fill just eight of those prophecies or just 48 of those prophecies. He filled all of more than 300 prophecies, including time-sensitive prophecies, which means if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then no one is. Because that specific day, the day that Daniel spoke about his come and gone, right? Well, when the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus, Matthew 12, seeking a sign, they said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You know, they wanted proof that Jesus was the Messiah as he claimed to be. And by this time, Jesus had already supplied so much proof that he was the Messiah. Lame men walking, blind people seeing, you know, sick people being healed, lepers being cleansed, the dead being raised to life again in the gospel preached. And Jesus said, okay, I'll give you guys a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. And he went on to say, Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the idea of the Greek there between the three days and three nights in the heart of the earth is three days and three nights only. The sign that Jesus offered the scribes and the Pharisees was the sign of his resurrection. Thomas Arnold, 1795-1842, became the Regis Professor of Modern History at Oxford. He was the great, one of the greatest historians of all time. He said in regards to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the quote. He says, I have been under, or I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose from the dead. He wrote that in his book, Christian Life, Its Hopes, Its Fears, and Its Close, uh, published 1859, uh, page 15 and 16. The evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead goes on and on and on. We could talk about it for days. Uh, we could talk about change, the changed lives of, of the apostle, how they were cowards abandoning Jesus at the time of his arrest, you know, exercising 
was just days later, unbelievable boldness almost overnight and never recanting their claims that they had seen Jesus alive after his uh, crucifixion, even when faced with martyrdom, right? We could talk about Jesus' brothers. They didn't even believe Jesus was the Messiah when he was alive. But then later on, they changed their minds. They called Jesus God. What was the reason? What could account for that change in their minds? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We could talk about Saul of Tarsus, who later became known as Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest Jewish minds. He was an up-and-coming young man in Judaism. He persecuted church, the church, throwing men and women into prison. He caused Christians to blaspheme God in heaven under the threat of death. He was responsible for the death of Stephen and make no mistake about it, many, many other Christians, right? Paul was too much of a thinker, too intelligent to be fooled. But then one day, Paul met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus. And that encounter changed his life overnight. He began preaching Jesus Christ as the risen Savior, as the promised Messiah of Israel. He preached Christ to his detriment. He was beaten, stoned, left for, bet, for dead. He was imprisoned, never one time changing his story, even up to the point of his own execution. All the proof that anyone could ever need, all the evidence is there for the honest seeker. It's all there to establish the fact that Jesus was indeed resurrected. He is risen. He is alive. And that brings us to the fourth section of the Bible, Acts the book of Acts to Revelation. In this fourth section of the Bible, I'll tell people, we see how we're to live our lives, how we're to walk with the risen Savior. The greatest event in human history leads us into the greatest personal experience anyone can ever have. Jesus' resurrection was God's stamp of approval that he was an acceptable sacrifice for sin. And as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, as we confess that we have sinned, that we have fallen short of God's perfect and holy standard, and when that confession is followed by turning uh, from our sin and turning towards God, we're forgiven. We're born again. And again, it makes sense. The cure for spiritual death is spiritual rebirth, right? Remember I said, you got to ask yourself, why did God go to so much trouble recording all these prophecies? And I said it was a twofold reason. The first was that when Messiah would come, uh, we would recognize him. The second reason is God, that God recorded all these prophecies regarding the Messiah hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years uh, before he showed up on the scene. Is He did it so that we could check them out, so that we could verify them. Right, So that we could thoughtfully, thoroughly investigate the fulfillment of these prophecies. You see, when God speaks accurately about things that will take place in the future, when we take the time to check them out and see that it did happen exactly the way he said it would, it gives us confidence to now trust him in the things we can't check out. You know, things like our sins are forgiven. Our names, when we place our faith in Jesus, 
are written in the Lamb's book of life, that one day Jesus, in fact, is coming again for his church. Praise the Lord, I can't wait. I'm ready for it. I mean, just to put a stop to the madness of this world. And the confidence that God gives us through the accurate prophetic witness encourages us as Christians to engage ourselves in the greatest privilege in human history. We get to share the gospel. Romans 3.10, this is the gospel. There's none righteous, no, not one. This is what I share with people. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, that's not my assessment. That's God's assessment, right? We're all guilty of sin before a holy God. Romans 5.8, but God did not, or, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It makes no difference whether you work at it part-time or full-time, the pay is exactly the same. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Eternal life is a gift, right? You can choose to receive it or reject it. It's entirely up to you. But it's glorious news because for the person who places their faith in Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven and their past is wiped away. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, right now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk, walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know, my past is taken out of the way. I'll never have to answer for those things that I've done that are contrary to God. And Romans 8, 28 says, and we know, we know that we know that we know, and we know that all things work together for the good to those that love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. That's presently, that's right now. That's going on right now. God is working all things out for my good, presently. But what about my future? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own sin, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us some things occasionally? That's not what it says. How he not freely give us all things all things. God has taken care of my past. He's working my present for the good. And he's promised to take care of me and provide for my future. And it's at this point when I'm sharing with people, I just ask them, would you like to pray? Would you like to have your sins forgiven? Would you like to have your past, just everything you've ever done wrong, just completely wiped out and forgiven? Would you like to have Jesus to come into your heart? Would you like to have God pour out his, his love on you? Would you like to know that when you die, that you're going to heaven? And you know what? Sometimes you'll run across that person that'll say, you know what? I can't be saved. <laughs> you don't know what I've done. And then I open my Bible. And I take them to Romans 10, 9 and 10, which says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? For with the mouth one believes unto righteousness, and with the, uh, sorry, with, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. And then I show them, drop down a little bit to verse 13, Romans 10, 13. Whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That includes everyone. 
That includes me. That includes all of us. Then I tell him, it doesn't matter what you've done. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. You know what? The cross of Jesus reveals the depths of God's love, paying the ultimate price so that we might be reconciled to the Father. What else does God need to do to show you how much he loves you? I'll ask people that. What else does he need to do? And you know what? Dear brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares him to be the Son of God with power, the Bible says. It's the proof of an acceptable sacrifice of sin. And it confirms the claims that Jesus uh, made. And God has entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. You know what? Let's share God's love with other people. Let's explain it to them in a way that they can understand it. I've always believed, and I'm a firm believer, I'll always believe it if we just tell people the truth. We don't need to hype it. We don't need to, you know, make it something that it's not. We don't need the smoke machines. We don't need the big screens and the productions, right? If we just tell people the truth, tell people of God's love, tell people of the peace that God has for us, the forgiveness that God is willing to extend to us. You know, if we just tell people what's available to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who wouldn't want it? Who wouldn't want it? Let's pray. The worship team can come up. Father, I'm so thankful for the resurrection. I'm thankful for the prophecies. I'm thankful that, God, you sent your son to die on the cross for us. But Lord, without the resurrection, we would, we would have no proof that that death was sufficient enough. But Lord, because he lived a sinless life, because he was offered and, and took our place, shed his blood that we might be forgiven, Lord, and because he was resurrected, we can know that we know that we know that we've been forgiven of our sins as we place our faith in you. And I'm so thankful for that, Lord. I'm so thankful that, that we're on our way to heaven. Lord, give us boldness to share Christ with other people. Lord, help us just to, just to open up our mouths. It's hard to get up in front of people. It's hard to share those things that, that we know is true in our heart. But Lord, give us that boldness. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.